Hear the word of God from chapter 8 of Mark's gospel. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give exchange for their soul? If anyone's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church family. How are we doing this morning? Some people better than others. Uh, typically, typically our, our pattern at Waypoint is, is we go through preaching through books of the Bible. Uh, this morning, we, we're continuing in a, in a brief series in, a, in the book of Mark. And you just heard chapter 8 read. Last week, Pastor Lawrence preached on Mark 1. And typically in our pattern, that would mean I'm about to preach through seven chapters of, of Mark. And that, I, I assure you, you don't have to be worried. That's not, that's not happening this morning. Uh, maybe, maybe you're coming in and you're thinking, man, I, like we were just, I thought we were just in Judges. And now we're, we're eight chapters deep in Mark. It's okay. This is week two. You didn't miss too many weeks. All right? We're, we're doing okay here. Um, this morning we are looking at a passage with a very significant question that has very significant implications. It's a question that's at the very heart of Mark's gospel. And it's a question that has the power to reset the trajectory of people's lives. I believe that. A question that's worth pondering. One that doesn't afford you a quick and easy answer because there's a cost either way you go. Just the other night, I was, I was telling my kids a story about the time my wife got really sick on an international flight heading from Beijing to Boston. 
It's not often that you get asked life-altering type questions. And, and maybe even in hearing the start of this story, you probably w wouldn't assume that a life-altering question was coming my way, but it, but it was. If you'd like to hear the full story, you're welcome to ask me about it sometime, but I'll, I'll give you the, the, the cliff notes with, with the punchline. The story ends with the pilot of the plane acknowledging that my wife was very sick. He told me that, that the doctors had explained to him what, what's going on as, as far as they understand and that her life could be in danger. This really happened. He gave me our current position over the Pacific Ocean. He started t telling me about emergency landing options in Juneau. And then he turned and asked me, what would you like for me to do? Again, this really happened. Now that's not a question you get to stay on the fence about. It's on the go. I didn't wake up that morning thinking, oh, this is going to be a question I need to be prepared for. And you don't get to know all the answers before they happen. They don't tell you all the outcomes. It's like, if, the, if I do this, then this will happen. If I do that, then that will happen. It's on the go. You just, at some point, you just have to decide. Now, the question we're talking about this morning, maybe, maybe it doesn't seem as urgent to you, but I assure you it is. The question is, who do you say that Jesus is? But you know, I imagine for the disciples, it, it probably just felt like another day. It's a travel day. It, just felt, it probably just felt like another day. Then they're struck by this, this significant question. In my community group, we've, we've been slowly walking through hearing people's testimonies. People are going through sharing their stories of, of how they came to faith. And a couple of reasons, just by the way, for, for hearing testimonies. Testimonies are a great way to reflect on the work of God in your life and to then share that with others. They're a powerful apologetic for God's ongoing involvement in the world around you through people that you're coming to know. And they give you courage to trust God as you're navigating the challenges of your own life. Testimonies are powerful stories. And one of the things I have loved about hearing people's stories is how God has moved in such very different ways in so many people's lives. I mean, some people have literally seen God work in ways that don't have human explanations. Others have been changed by what we might consider pretty ordinary means. I mean, sometimes it's literally a sentence or a question that just sticks with you. It just, just sticks with you. You can't shake it. Well, in context here in Mark 8, for Jesus and his disciples, like I said, it's a travel day. They've left Bethsaida and are headed to Caesarea Philippi. And right before this, as we, as we had read, Jesus heals a blind man, which is something maybe you've come to expect in the Gospels. You expect to hear Jesus do something miraculous. But if you listen to the story, this, this, this is an odd Miracle. This is an odd story. I mean, the, the, the man calls for Jesus' help. Jesus goes to him. He leads him out of the village. He spits on his eyes. Like, he's doing something there. Then he asks him if you can see. He, he, he spits on his eyes. I, I don't know why he spit on his eyes, but he spits on his eyes. And when Jesus asks him, can you see anything? The blind man, what, what would you expect a blind man to say? What, is, what has the blind man seen before? He says, I see people, but they look like trees. 
I mean, that's just, that's, that's fascinating. I don't know what I would expect, but I don't know that I would expect that. Jesus puts his hands on the man's eyes again. And in verse 25, the text says, Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now, I believe the placement of this story is intentional. What Mark is doing is intentional to cue us up for the groundbreaking discipleship moment that takes place in the following passage. The disciples are about to have their eyes open, but the restoration process will not be immediate. It's going to be gradual. Their view of the Messiah will be more like mistaking people for trees. But Jesus is going to speak plainly to them, and it will take time for them to really see what Jesus is doing, to really see who Jesus is. As I mentioned about people's testimonies, the moment of faith doesn't come after we have all of our questions answered or once we've assessed all the data points. Genuine faith is not the product of hearing everybody else's opinion and then going with the majority view. No, at some point, you're confronted with the question, who do you say that Jesus is? There are certain people in your life that once you meet them, you can never unknow. Jesus is one of them. So the question I want you to hear Jesus asking you this morning is, who do you say I am? This is the central question of Mark's gospel, and it's the central question of our lives. Who do you say that Jesus is? That's a question I invite you to consider as we travel along the way, as we consider the, the cross of Christ this morning. And our first point is very simple. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. So far in Mark's gospel, there have been a lot of different responses to the person of Jesus. I mean, some encounter Jesus and they want to follow him. Some are confused by his teachings and others reject him outright. And just to note, so that we're, we're tracking here, so we're aware of the kind of people that are, that are tracking with Jesus. So far, faithful responses to Jesus' ministry have been few and far between. We've had an unclean woman, a Syrophoenician woman, and a Gentile mute, which is notable for a guy who's coming to, to address the, the people of, of the, the Jewish people. None of the people tracking with him are the Jewish people. And even still, there's, there's not a clear recognition about who, who this Jesus is. And so you have this scene. Jesus, Jesus is with his disciples. They're, they're walking to Caesarea Philippi. And you can just imagine, he asks him, so guys, you've, you've, been, you've been checking the crowds, haven't you? I mean, you, you've been staying up to date about, about what, what's, what's the latest news. So what are you hearing? What are the people saying about me? What's, what's the latest gossip, you know? And I'm sure they, you know, they tell them, you know, well, some people, some people think you're John. Like John just, just got beheaded. Some people think you're John. Some people are saying you're the Elijah. And that means something to them. Maybe that doesn't mean anything to you. That means something to them. And then Jesus says, but, but what about you? What do you guys think? Who, who do you say I am? Surely that question isn't just for those in the story, right? It's, it's for the reader to ruminate on as well. We're, as, as we're reading this story, we're meant to, to be asking ourselves, well, well what are they going to say? Who is he? What's he about? And surely the disciples, they've been pondering this question deeply since, since he calmed the sea. 
I mean, in Mark 4, Jesus says to his disciples, why are you so afraid? This is coming after he's come to see. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified. And they asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. You see, Jesus doesn't intend for his disciples to just regurgitate what they've heard from others, but to consider for themselves. Make your own judgment. Don't just write on the backs of what other people are saying. You have to decide for yourself. It's worth noting not just that Peter and the disciples believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but also what they meant by their confession. Peter says, Jesus, you're the Messiah. What does that mean? Jesus as the Messiah did not necessitate that they believed Jesus was God. Messiah means anointed one, the, the coming king. They think he's the coming king. Now for us, for, for those who've been around for a while, we, we know that, that Jesus being the Messiah entails suffering. But a suffering king come to rescue his people, that just doesn't make logical sense. To give you a glimpse into the psyche of first century Jewish thought related to the role of the Messiah, consider these writings from, from the Psalms of Solomon. Now the Psalms of Solomon were a collection of, of Jewish prayers written during the first century, probably sometime around 60 AD. So we're not, it, it, when you hear Psalms, in this case, we're not talking about scripture. We're talking, we're talking about just writings contemporary to the day. But consider these words as a, as a kind of framework contemporary to, to Jesus' day about who the Messiah is as, as they think about it, as they, as they understand it. The Psalms of Solomon, it says, O Lord, raise up their king, the son of David, that he may reign over Israel, thy servant. Gird him with strength that he might shatter unrighteous rulers, that he may purge Jerusalem from nations that trample her to destruction. Wisely, righteously, he shall thrust out sinners from the, the inheritance he shall destroy the pride of the sinner as a potter's vessel. With a rod of iron, he shall break in pieces all their substance. He shall destroy the godless nation with the word of his mouth. As his rebuke, at his rebuke, nations shall fall before him, and he shall reprove sinners for the thoughts of their heart. He shall gather together a holy people whom he shall lead in righteousness and he shall judge the tribes of the people that have been sanctified by the Lord his God and he shall not allow unrighteousness to lodge any more in their midst nor shall there dwell with them any man who knows wickedness for he shall know them that they are all sons of their God. This is, this is the language, this is the framework that's, that's describing who the Messiah is. The Messiah's coming to conquer. He's coming to clean ship. He's coming to right the ship. He's coming to make things right. I find this, this description to give a helpful understanding of what the, ex, the messianic expectation would have looked like at the time of Jesus' arrival. And perhaps characterize what would have been in Peter's social machinery as he's expressing this realization that he believes Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. But as Jesus began to teach them, the Messiah, the Son of Man, must suffer many things. Which brings us to our second point. To, to really know Jesus, you must understand his mission. The Messiah 
must suffer. This is central to who Jesus is. And for those who are in Christ, this will be central to who you must become. Following Jesus doesn't mean you get to do whatever you please, but that you learn to go where he goes. Jesus' identity begins to superimpose your own. You're becoming like him. You are joined with him. If we go back to the imagery of the story that precedes this passage, again, Peter's vision is getting better, but it's still blurry. Peter, and the disciples for that matter, have begun to see Jesus, but only as one who can see in part, but not in full. They don't fully understand what it means, even what they're saying. Jesus is the Messiah. Now, rebuke is strong language, but but it's what Peter needed here. Notice that the rebuke didn't disqualify, disqualify Peter from continuing to follow. In this case, the rebuke of Peter was a necessary part of his ongoing spiritual formation. Peter needed this clarification. He needed to be corrected here. And why does Jesus make such a strong rebuke? It's because Peter is acting out of self-interest. He's resistant to what Jesus is actually doing. He hasn't yet learned to submit to the will of the Father. Peter is effectively telling Jesus that Jesus must deny himself to forsake the very means by which God intends to bring about salvation. That's what Peter is saying. But what Peter needs to learn is what it means to deny himself, to lose his life, that he might save it. Look at verse 31 again, and you plainly see the two musts of the mission of Jesus when he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. These are not things Jesus might do. These are things Jesus must do. As James Edwards says, when Jesus finally speaks of his messianic status, It is not to claim the common understanding, but to redefine it practically beyond recognition. Not only does Jesus not fit the messianic stereotype, but he defines his mission in scandalous contrast to it. The meaning of his life and mission is not about victory and success. That's what Peter's after. That's what the disciples are after. That's probably what you're after. The meaning of his life and mission is not about victory and success, but about rejection, suffering, and death. By saying the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected, Jesus is bringing together two ideas that have never been connected before. His divine identity with his mission of future suffering. Jesus' suffering is not a matter of warning. It's a matter of necessity. Jesus is saying... You're right to call me the Messiah. He doesn't deny it. But what he says is, you cannot understand who I am unless you understand what I'm on mission to do. And in turn, you cannot be my disciple unless you follow me. In other words, hear me, hear me. What people are saying about me, people are saying I'm Elijah, that I'm John the Baptist, And what they mean to say is that I'm on par with the greats of our history, that I'm a a great leader, an influential teacher. Now you say, you say I'm the Messiah. And what you mean is that I'm the anointed one 
who's come to gather up my holy people and to lead them in the way of righteousness. And you're right. But you must understand how I intend to do that. The way to righteousness will come by way of the cross. Jesus is saying the Messiah must suffer. He will suffer. One of the things that, that, that's truly remarkable about Jesus is, is just, it's just how strong he is in his humiliation. I mean, I, I'm sure many of you have, have listened to the, the Rise and Fall of Marsfield podcast. And even if you haven't, it's, it's, knowing the backstory is not, not important to, to get the point other than that this, this huge church dissolved and it affected and impacted a lot of people, Right? And, and one detail I was struck by as, as I listened to this series is it, it, reflecting back on it, is a comment that one of the people made in the, in the final episode. He's retelling after, after the church dissolved how difficult it was for many of the former staff members to find employment. Having the, the Mars Hill name became an unavoidable stain on, on their resumes. It was the only work experience they had. So they couldn't, they couldn't avoid it. But nobody wanted to hire them because of it. He goes on to say, these, these were men, these, I considered these men to be great friends. They were godly men, great dads. And six months later, they were all struggling to find work. Their, their, their marriages were falling apart. They were spiraling into depression and alcoholism, suicidal ideation. Just six months later, they had become unrecognizable from their former selves. And I, I haven't shaken that thought. I haven't shaken that thought, how, how fragile the human experience can truly be. And to wonder, at the end of the day, what have I really built my life on? What's at the foundation? In moments of despair, when the world is caving in on you, I mean, I wonder about this from time to time. In, in, in this life, there will be troubles. What will come out of me in those moments of desperation? What am I storing up in myself right now? What am I filling my life with? What has captivated the eyes of my heart? And, and what will come out of me in those moments and seasons of trial? When all the filters and all the glamour of life fade, when you're forced to consider what really matters, what's really in me? What am I really for? What's my life really about? And then you turn back to Jesus in this moment as he's making things clear and you realize, oh, wait a minute. He intends to go there. That's where he's going. He intends to go to the depths of hell on earth. He intends to put on shame and total humiliation, total despair. What Jesus is doing is showing us what a life of surrender and obedience to the Father looks like. It produces self-sacrifice and a genuine love that seeks the welfare of others. Many times my expression of love looks more like an expending of energy out of obligation in order to get others to reciprocate. I mean, it's hard to give yourself in service to another without expecting anything in return, or at least hoping for it. But the kind of love Jesus expresses toward you 
It's the kind of love that says not even death could do us part. In fact, it's by death that I will bring us together. And how does Jesus spend his humiliation? What's his response to these people? Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. That's not pretense. That's the cry of a Savior motivated by love. You want to see power? Jesus says, I'll show you power. Just look at the cross. Edward Schweizer says, God is therein precisely God in that he can do what humanity cannot do. God can allow himself to be rejected, to be made low and small without thereby being driven into an inferiority complex. Apart from Christ, we have never felt so secure. Whoever understands the suffering of the Son of Man understands God. It is there that one sees the heart of God in his suffering. It's impossible for us to understand Jesus as Messiah apart from his crucifixion. I mean, there's no other way around it. Suffering is essential to Jesus' calling. The cross is the mission he must bear to fulfill the plans God has for salvation. Jesus must be a crucified Savior. Any other characterization of Jesus is a misidentification of God and of yourself. The reason why this matters is not only that we are saved, but it's essential for our living out our union with Christ. We are united to Him. Our identity is wrapped up in Him. So you have to decide, am I the kind of person who accepts Jesus on His terms? Or am I the kind of person who thinks He's full of it? Christianity does not make sense if Jesus is not the suffering Messiah. Christianity does not make sense if Jesus is not the suffering Messiah. You can start start deconstructing a lot of Christianity if Jesus is not who he says he is. It all hinges on that. So will you follow Jesus where he leads? That's our third point. As Jesus is, so must I be. As Jesus is, so must I be. Where he goes, so must I go. That's what it means to follow him. What Jesus is telling us is that it's not enough for us to understand that he's the Messiah. Jesus being the Messiah and his messianic mission have a direct relationship to what it means to follow him, to know and embody the values of God's kingdom. The call that Jesus makes in verses 34 through 38 is radical. It's a call for us to forsake all the ways our world tells us to run after meaning and fulfillment apart from God. Just as Jesus has redefined what it means for him to be the Messiah, he wants to redefine our very lives and identities. He's saying what you are seeking is a good thing, but the way you are seeking to find yourself actually leads to death. If you really want to live, you must learn to die. But listen, you cannot die and live apart from Jesus. Learning a new way of life is a call to discipleship. And let's be honest, discipleship is hard for us. It's hard for us to grapple. What what does this mean? How do I change? I mean, what many people are tempted to do is what they they did prior to becoming a Christian. They say, well, well, how I lived then, that, that makes sense to me. 
I'll just turn and, and channel that energy toward my faith. And so, so you shift from one performance-based identity to another. And you run and you run and you go that way for a while. And then you realize, man, I, I love Jesus. I believe that he's Lord and Savior. I want to follow him, but I am burnt out. So the problem must have been the discipleship program I was involved in. Instead of doing those things, I know all, all that God really wants from God, I'm free in Christ. And so that means I can do whatever I want. God has no requirements of me. And so we go in that direction. We go all in in that direction. We go in that direction. And then at some point, we get to this, this, this point where we're like, why, why do I lack intimacy with God? Like, I know, I know that Jesus loves me. But I don't feel like Jesus loves me. And part of it is because you, you decided, well, I, I don't, like, God doesn't want anything of me, and so you don't even, you don't even have a relationship with him. You don't even connect with him. You're saying, why, why don't I feel, I don't feel intimacy with God. Why? And we're tempted to just go from one extreme to the next, wondering why nothing seems to be working, why we can't seem to figure out what it means to actually abide in Jesus. We can't earn God's favor. No, we shouldn't. We shouldn't strive for that. But that doesn't mean we can't energetically open ourselves to receive more of his grace. And the reason why we do this, listen to this, this is profound. The reason why we do this is because we love Jesus. Do you love Jesus? Do you know this Jesus? I can't make that any simpler for you. We don't need to keep up appearances. We need to learn how to lose ourselves in Him. Following Jesus means a laying down of one's agenda and submitting to Christ. Of not being ashamed of Him, but accepting that there's no thing we have obtained in this life that can impact our eternity like Jesus. I mean, at the end of this week, what have you earned that has done more for you than Jesus? In the world, you are taught to preserve the life you have. To make it as good as you possibly can. How's that going? But in Jesus, you can stop living for the life that only you can create. And you can start trusting in God to provide the life that is only possible through Jesus. We will feast in the house of Zion. You can start living for that right now. What gives us the courage to forsake our agendas like this? and to embrace a completely renewed way of living. The gospel does. It's the gospel. We need to cultivate a humble, teachable spirit among us. Do you hear me, church? We need to cultivate a humble, teachable spirit among us. The way we do this is by continuing to encounter the gospel in our lives by sitting at the feet of the crucified and risen Savior is the context where real transformation happens. Where we can consider hard questions like, where are the places in my life where I act like Jesus is completely irrelevant? Or what are the ways in which I try to replace Christ's work with my own? What are all the ways I seek credibility and validation apart from Jesus? You want to know what your life is built on? Answer those questions. And we feel the freedom, listen, 
We feel the freedom to ask these heart-probing questions because Jesus has taken shame and condemnation away from us. This is how we are learning to, to walk in, to live out our union with Christ. In Christ, there is no condemnation. There is no more shame. This isn't, this isn't a guilt trip. This is reality. You're in Christ. You're a new creation. You're learning to walk in that. You can deal with sin in the context of God's grace. We don't minimize sin and we don't overlook it, but we learn to live as ones who are no longer defined by it and who are learning to walk in freedom from it. You are free. Live free. This is how we learn to address self-righteousness. Now we grow in compassion. It's by continuing to return to the gospel, by looking at Christ. We've spent too much time looking at ourselves and the things that we have done or where we've fallen short. But every time you look at the place where you've fallen short, look all the more at Christ and what he has earned on your behalf and trust him. Take him at his word. Believe him. You're free. No more condemnation. No more shame. Listen to these words again. These are, these are striking. This is, this is a new way of thinking. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now what I love, what I love about this passage is that, when the, that the way to freedom comes in the opposite direction that our culture is constantly pushing us. Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, then your life is no longer about you. Our culture says freedom comes from finding yourself. So you look and you discover and you change and you mold and, and you find what works for you. You find yourself, right? And in one sense, Jesus actually affirms that. We do need to find ourselves. But it's the way Jesus says we find ourselves that pushes us against the current. We find ourselves by losing ourselves. We gain not by indulging, but by denying. Now, this doesn't mean a stripping of all the good things in our lives. It means being able to actually enjoy the good things God has given without feeling the need to be defined or enslaved by them. Do you hear the difference? The way to truly find yourself is by losing yourself in Jesus. So church, who do you say that Jesus is? Who is this Jesus? To make a confession about Jesus is also a declaration about who we must become. Jesus is freeing us. He's not talking about giving away all your money or which tax bracket is appropriate for the Christian to fall into. He's talking about letting money just be money. You're not ruled by it. He's not talking about forsaking your friends, that you might benefit from letting go of some of the relationships you're holding on to right now. He's talking about being found in Jesus, that you aren't controlled by the judgments and peer pressure of others. Sex is a good gift 
in its proper context. Many of us are, are ruled by it. But in Jesus, you stop viewing others as commodities to consume, but image bears with dignity and agency to cherish. You poor, incredibly capable overachiever, you can stop viewing yourself as the difference in this world because you trust Jesus to be. You accept your limitations, and for the first time in your life, you can breathe. You can actually make an impact because you accept Jesus is the difference. You see, the call to come and die, to bear your cross, it's radical. It's radical how sensible it is. It's the way of Jesus. It's what he's called us to. Church, who do you say that Jesus is? It's the question of our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is, a, this is a hard word for us because we spent so much time running in the opposite direction. We spent so much time learning how to strive and to earn and to acquire. God, teach us your way. Fill us with your spirit. This is a hard teaching for us. But God, this is good for us as we continue to learn and to grow, to put things in the right perspective, in the right order as we trust you as the, as the suffering Messiah who has overcome sin and death. God, that you, you raise on high, you are exalted. And God, even now, you are praying on our behalf. You, you are working, you are for us. And if you are for us, who can be against us? We can actually learn to, to shed the, the sin and shame and to be found as new people in you, in Christ Jesus. God, we can live in that today. I pray that we would walk in it in spirit and truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And in the same spirit of the sermon of taking up our cross, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And like I mentioned earlier, this is a meal for those who have accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. Uh, if you did not get a cup, uh, our welcome team is passing them out. We have a gluten-free option. If you need that specifically, please ask them for that. We have both. Uh, sorry, these aren't the greatest things in the world. They're a little hard to peel, so you might want to start peeling the top part. If you spill, it's all right. God forgives us for the grape juice on the floor. Um, wow. So this morning, we join with our Christian brothers and sisters around the world in participation in the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion. This is a time when followers of Jesus come together and reflect and remember the death and suffering of, of Jesus Christ and the new covenant we have in him. And um, in light with the sermon, I just want to read Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah wrote this 600 years before Jesus came to the earth. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, we are healed. This is what we're celebrating today. This word peace here, 
is shalom. It's the Hebrew word shalom. His punishment brought us peace. We can walk in peace as we take up the cross. Paul says in Romans 5, using the same word, he says we're justified by Christ so we have peace with God. Referring to this Isaiah passage. By his wounds we are healed. You are healed. We are part of a new covenant. I love how Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, all three, point to the new covenant that we have in Christ. So let's remember that new covenant that Jesus has made with us, that we are forgiven people, we are born again, we are new creation. We are people with a hope and a future, people of the kingdom of God. Just take a moment to let that soak in. You have Christ. You have a hope. You have a family. These people in this room and brothers and sisters throughout the world right now are doing the same thing you're doing taking part of this meal to remember the suffering and the resurrection of Christ. We have a family. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. At this time, you can take the bread and remember that this is the body of Christ that was broken for you. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup. Please join me in prayer. God, as we celebrate this season of Lent, a season of just remembering that we came from dust and we'll return to dust, but we will rise again with you and we're preparing our hearts for Easter. May we be a people who just always remember your sacrifice, but always walk in the newness of life that we have in you. May we always know that denying ourselves and turning to you is peace. It is hope. Thank you that you poured out your spirit on us, your church, so that we can do this. And we just trust you in this, and we thank you that we get to be your body of broken people, forgiven by the blood on the cross, and raised to new life with Christ, and empowered by the Holy Spirit to be the people you've called us to be. We give you all the praise in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen.